I, I want to make a, a few remarks first, and then we'll open in prayer, and then I'll have a, a brief message tonight, or brief for me at least. Um, first of all, I have shocking news for all of you. Um, I am not Phil Johnson. Um, Phil had an unexpected surgery just a couple of days ago, and as much as he would have been gurneyed here, um, you're just going to have to picture me with a goatee and a sweater vest and uh, an IQ way higher than what I have. If you want your money back, um, our regional office in Anchorage, Alaska is open tomorrow (laughs) at 6 a.m. for one minute, and you can get your money back if you want. But no, uh, I'm going to kick things off this evening Tonight, later on, you're going to uh, hear from Jesse Johnson. You're going to get a a generous helping from Jesse's uh, work in this area. And we'll hear from him three more times tomorrow, as well as Sunday morning. So we're really anxious for that. But the Word of God is the Word of God. And we're just mouthpieces anyway. And so who stands back here really just is faithfulness. But if it helps you to to picture a goatee, then that's that's up to you. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3. And then I'm going to pray while you're finding that text. Our Father, we come to you tonight just to begin working our minds toward truth, working our hearts toward a desire to obey you. We live in a world that every year that passes, it becomes clearer and clearer to us that this is a world that hates Christ and hates those who love Christ. And it seems like every area of our lives gets invaded by lies and by deception. And it seems that the evil one just won't leave anything alone. Even something as wholesome as patriotism, the evil one will use for his purposes. And so we ask you tonight and tomorrow, as men in particular, as we lead our families that you would help us to navigate this world. We are strangers and aliens. We are sojourners. We are travelers. We do not belong to this world, but we're in it. And so we ask you to help us and to guide us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be in Colossians 3 in a few minutes. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's fine. I'll read the text to you. But tonight I'd like to talk to you about what I'll call the lie of distracted hope. The lie of distracted hope. We're focused on the question of Christian nationalism, and in a moment I'll offer a couple of perspectives from other resources just to kind of get our our, our minds going. But just to be very clear up front, and I'm sure this will be repeated multiple times, and we've said it in other settings as well, God designed the world to be made up of nations. That's That's how the world is built. This began at creation. You can go all the way back to Genesis 2 and see the names of nations. And you can go all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, and see nations bringing their gifts to God. And so that's how the world is built. National and unique ethnic identity, that's a creation of God. The original idea of nations is to celebrate the vast variety of people that God made. And so being patriotic, being a help, being useful, being loyal to your own nation, that's born out in Scripture. It's only sin in the world that's turned that into something that's competitive to where one nation must protect itself against another and so forth. 
That being said, here are a couple of perspectives just to kind of get our thinking going on the topic of Christian nationalism. Christianity Today gave this definition of Christian nationalism. I'm not saying I agree or disagree with it. This is just what they say. That Christian nationalism is the belief that the American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take active steps to keep it that way. Popularly, Christian nationalists assert that America is and must remain a Christian nation, not merely as an observation about American history, but as a prescriptive program for what America must continue to be in the future. Just a little over a year ago, there was a significant study done by the Pew Research Center, and this was their conclusion. Quote, most Americans think the founders of America intended for the U.S. to be a Christian nation. More than four in ten, 45 percent, think the United States should be a Christian nation. And one third say the country is a Christian nation today. Now, how this actually gets lived out, though, is dramatically different in everyone's minds. On one end of the spectrum are those who envision what the Pew Research Center calls strict theocratic rule. And on the other end of the spectrum, that we're just, as Christians, to ask people to embrace some moral values that relatively look like Christianity. Things like helping each other and being good neighbors and so forth. Now, my focus tonight is not so much on crafting a response to those ideas. Jesse Johnson is going to take on that task But before I get to my main thrust for tonight, I want to just make two very brief theological observations in response to those statements about Christian nationalism. And I know this will get expounded upon more, but first of all, it's very difficult to agree on the definition of a Christian nation. We can look back at history and we can see the tremendous influence of Christianity on the formulation of our own nation. But a Christian is an individual who has repented of his sin has exercised humble saving faith in Christ based on Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. He's a new creation in Christ. That's a Christian. The Bible never defines Christian any other way. It's a second brief observation. Christian nationalism seems to be almost exclusively associated with the United States. Christian nationalism in our country tends toward a view of us being a chosen nation on the level of Israel in the Old Testament. I think we would have difficulty securing support for that scripturally. So there's two little observations, but really to get into the midst of our lives, I want to examine the lie of distracted hope. The lie of distracted hope. It is a dead-end road. It's a complete fallacy, and I think everyone here probably gets this already, It's a dead-end road to place all your hope in one man or to place all your hope in one policy or to place all your hope in one elected official or even a set of elected officials. And frankly, the idea of elected officials is so new and almost non-existent in the history of government that it just makes a little tiny blip on the radar of history. It's just not a thing that has happened that much in history. And even in nations which utilized elections and still do by the people, invariably they tend towards what? They tend toward corruption over time. That has always been the case in history. Power corrupts, and when people are given power, sin nature takes over, and they don't want to give it up. They they don't want to give it away. 
I think for all of us, the COVID years will be burned in our memories as when the powerful in the government historically and horrifically abused that power to seize control of people's lives, including seeing pastors arrested and imprisoned for doing nothing more than preaching the gospel to groups of people who wanted to be together. And so for us as men, what do you do? Common sense dictates certainly that some candidates are better for freedom and for a reasonable quality of life than others. So what is your responsibility as a man with a family in the face of government oppression? And I'm going to say government oppression because throughout the 2,000 years of Christian history, the government is always the main source of persecution of Christians. That has always been the case. It will be all the way even if you read into the book of Revelation. So what do you do? Do you make donations to the candidate of your choice? There's nothing wrong with that. It's your money to do with as you see fit. Is it to make certain you vote? Nothing wrong with that. It's a privilege that very few in the world have. Is it to make certain your family has a small supply of food and water for an emergency? That's fine if you want to do that. That's not a problem. Is it to be prepared to protect your family? That is always your right. That is always your prerogative. But I'm going to assert to you that all throughout history, there is something that godly family men have done in the face of wicked governing authorities. What they've done in the face of of corrupt officials. There is a radical action that Christian men have taken in response to these God-given freedoms to live as those made in the image of God, being restricted or even taken away. And for now, I'm just going to call that radical action the great defense. The great defense is the responsibility of the Christian family man. And I call it the great defense because it's, it's a wall of defense around you. It's a wall of defense around your family that's impenetrable. It's impassable. You can't get around it. There's no law. There's no statute. There's no persecution. There's nothing that can take that great defense away from you. It is yours. If you're not engaged in the great defense right now, now is the time to start. Because when persecution heats up, when the government increases in wickedness, then you'll be behind, you'll be playing catch-up on the great defense, you'll be an amateur. But to lay the groundwork for the great defense, we have to deal with, first of all, the lie of distracted hope from Colossians 3, 1 through 4. My concern for Christian nationalism is that it actually is a form of pseudo-Christianity in which true spiritual hope is placed in temporal things such as presidents and congressmen and changing laws and and defending rights. And all those are good things. But when hope, listen, when hope is placed in anything other than Christ, that thing is an idol. It must be placed properly under Christ. To hope in anything other than what we're going to see in Colossians 3 is a lie. It is the lie of distracted hope. And I believe that our time in Colossians 3 will help us all see the desperate necessity that you have a responsibility as family men to initiate the great defense. Nineteen times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to what people are thinking, what's in their minds. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. They think that they will be heard for their many words. Why do you think evil in your hearts? What do you think, Simon? 
19 times. The Apostle Paul asserted that what is in the mind is the real measure of the maturity of a believer. Philippians 3, 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul also declared that what you think is the key to your joy and to your contentment. We see that in Philippians 4. And now in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about where we put our minds and tell us how to do it very practically, actually. Now, Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is a transitional passage. Paul's been explaining the theology of Christ and now in very typical style for him, he begins to give the implications of this sound understanding. He's explaining the centrality of Christ as the entire basis for your worship, for living every aspect of your life. He's just concluded by saying that we have died with Christ, we're not alive to the world, and now having died with Christ... Colossians 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with Him in glory. There's two commands we want to focus on here. They're very simple. In verse 1 and verse 2, seek the things above. And the second command, set your minds on things above. Seek the things above and set your minds on things above. And they sound similar, but they're actually different. And so let's kind of unravel them a bit. The first command that Paul gives here, seek the things above. Seeking here has to do with desire. It has to do with what's inside you. Cultivating a desire for something. It speaks of making inquiries, of investigating, asking questions. It can even speak of looking for something that's been lost. You're inquiring. In different contexts, it can even be used of demanding something. That's not the main idea here. But all of these nuances have something in common. What they have in common is a proactive effort to increase your desire, increase your yearning, increase your longing for something by placing your mind on it. Paul's exhortation to cultivate this greater desire for Christ, he gives us some divisions on how to do this. And he does it from your relationship to Christ from the past, from the present, and in the future. That's how you set your mind on these things above. First of all, he speaks of the past. In verse 3, he says, For you died. If your death with Christ has severed the chains that bound you to the world, to your old sin nature, to the powers of evil, then your resurrection with Christ, that you've been raised up with Christ, this establishes new bonds, new relationships. It establishes that that the alliance that you had with darkness is now broken in Christ's death. An alliance with light is now formed in Christ's resurrection. And in verse 1, Paul says you've been raised up with Christ. This is a, a passive verb. It means you've been raised By someone else. God did this. You didn't ask for it. You just received it. And it speaks in such absolute terms. 
Paul says you've been given new life in Christ. This is your position. It's so very certain that Scripture speaks of it as a past reality. You've been, past tense, raised with Christ. This is stunning. This hasn't actually happened in reality yet, but your position is that you are raised with Christ. It's already occurred. And then Paul relates us to the present, our present relationship with Christ. In verse 1, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is extensively repeated in the New Testament. Mark 14, Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In Hebrews 8.1, Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's the place we spiritually look, a place of our concentration. Hebrews 12, 2, that we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is our present relationship with him. And as part of that present relationship, in verse 3, we have this interesting phrase. Your life is hidden with Christ. It's hidden with Christ. Now, the book of Colossians addresses what some have called the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy was an attempt to get people to participate in kind of hidden mysteries, to experience a a higher plane of spirituality through mystical initiation, severe fasting, self-denial, asceticism, and so forth. But Paul, on the other hand, says, how about this for attaining to hidden mysteries? Your life is hidden with Christ. Meaning, the real hidden mystery is you. It's you. Now, this is mysterious. To be hidden with Christ, it speaks of a deep, close, intimate association of experiencing what he's experiencing, receiving what he's experiencing. You're hidden with him. I think a good way to illustrate this, if you'll allow me just a little bit of poetic license, is to think of this this way. As Christ was being laid down on the cross, and right before the nails were driven into his wrists, I want you to imagine that one of his hands closes. While Jesus is in agony on the cross, the hand stays closed. And as he cries out to God in the full fury of the wrath of God being poured on him, his hand stays closed. And even as he dies in death, his hand is closed. It's closed as he's placed in the tomb on the Lord's Day morning, Sunday morning when Jesus emerges from the grave in glory. His hand is closed. Forty days later, when he ascends into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God, his hand is closed. As Satan, the accuser, continues to accuse and berate you before God, and as Jesus defends you based on the cross and advocates for your ultimate salvation, his hand is still closed. As you live your life as a believer in Christ, and though you sin and fail and learn and grow, his hand is still closed. And as you approach your final moments, as your, your heart begins to fail and your organs begin to fail and your, your eyes grow dim, God knowing the exact millisecond when your life on this earth will cease, when you take that great journey from life to death, at just that right moment, 
the precious hand of Jesus Christ, which has been closed for so long, will open. And what will you see? You'll see yourself safely hidden and kept until that moment. Your life is hidden with Christ. Why? Because Jesus made the promise to hide you in Him. He said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What would it take for you to lose your salvation? Your status is one hidden with Christ. It would take someone strong enough to pry open the hand of God. That's why verse 4 says, Christ is your life. He is your life. That's the past, that's the present. What, what about your future relationship Verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with Him in glory. What is Paul speaking of here when he says, when Christ is manifested? Is this what is described in 1 Thessalonians 4, at least in our way of thinking, a rapture, resurrection event? Is that what it is? Or is it the second coming of Christ described in Revelation 19? What, What is this? Well, to help answer that question, we have to ask another Is this speaking of where you will appear with Christ in glory? Or is it speaking in what manner you will appear with Christ? In glory, meaning perfected holiness, Christ-likeness. Which one is it? Well, in this case, because of the context of who you are and your complete identification with Christ, we would apply in Christ to mean the manner in which you'll appear with Christ. And in fact, it's Christ's appearing which is the catalyst. It's the changing factor which completes the process of your ultimate salvation, your ultimate sanctification. It's the moment we see Christ for the first time that we become like Him in reality, sinless, holy, perfected. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So regarding this first question, when Christ appears, the short-term answer is that at your death, Christ will appear to you as you enter into heaven. But even then, are you fully like Him? Not yet. There's a little missing piece. The resurrection and the perfection of your body, the very body you possess right now, made into a glorified body like Christ's. And so ultimately... When you are raised in glory, as 1 Corinthians 15, 43 says, then you will appear with Him in glory. But is that even the fullness of appearing with Him in glory? Not yet. Not yet. Ultimately, we would have to say that the appearance of Christ in glory must be His second coming. You will appear with Him in glory, uh, with glory also, just taking at face value what we see in Scripture Here's a view from heaven. As the great tribulation draws to a close, faithful and true, Jesus, with the eyes of flaming fire, readies himself to invade earth and conquer his enemies. And Revelation 19.14 says, The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. The text is very clear, very specific to identify those in fine linen, white and pure as the saints. That's you, ready to be revealed in glory. That's, that's the view from heaven, the view from earth. 
Matthew 24, 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And a few verses earlier, Jesus said, As the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So there's a future eschatological literal nature to appearing with Him in glory. Now, why are we going down this road? I can't think of loftier thoughts to think. Let's return to the closed hand illustration. When you are taken into the hand of Jesus to die with Him, to be raised with Him, you came to Christ in the filth of your sin. You came in the wretchedness of depravity. You came with nothing to offer God except your utter failure to live up to a standard of holiness. When you entered into Christ, when Christ became your life, you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You were made into a new creation in Christ. But in time and space, in our current reality, you have continued to sin. You've continued to utterly fail to live up to God's standard of holiness. You've sinned even today, probably, in some form of selfishness in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions. But when the hand opens... When Christ appears and reveals you, it will be the Christ-like perfected version of you. Made ready to reign with Christ. Based on your past, you've been raised with Christ. Based on your present, your life is hidden with God in Christ. And based on your future, that you will appear with Him in glory You are to seek the things above. What does that mean? It's your mind. Cultivate a desire for Christ to purposefully think the very thoughts Paul is setting forth for us. Seek the things above. Cultivate your desire for Christ. Think on your relationship with Christ from the past, in the present, and in the future. But that's just the first command. The second one, It sounds similar, but it's actually a response. Set your minds on things above. Set your minds on things above. This seems similar, but it's actually a transitional idea. What's the difference between seeking and setting your mind? Seeking has to do with your thinking, with your desires. To set or set your mind is different. We get a clue from the Greek translation of the Old Testament in which the same word is often used or translated to be wise, or to be discerning. The noun version can even be translated as a shepherd, someone who does wise things. When Paul was taken as a prisoner all the way to Rome, three days after he arrived, he, he asked local Jewish leaders to come speak to him, and they were, they were curious about Christianity. And they made a request of Paul, Acts twenty eight twenty two. but we desire to hear from you what your views are. What your views are is the same word translated, set your mind. What have you set your mind to, Paul? What is so important to you that you would willingly come to Rome to be tried before Caesar in chains? What is it that dictates all your actions? And in the next verse, Paul says he was, he was trying to convince them about Jesus. So in other words, to set your mind on something is to act in wisdom in accordance with that thing which you are seeking. To be so completely convinced in your mind of truth 
that now you live your life in response to this knowledge. So to seek and to set, they might seem similar, but this is the point of the transition here. Seek has to do with what you know, your knowledge of Christ, your position in Him, what He's done in the past, what He's doing in the present, what He'll do in the future, while set has to do with what are you going to do about it? What's happening in your life that reveals what you're seeking? What is your basis for decisions? So setting your minds is not just pondering truth. It's your response to the truth. Now, how do we connect those two? How is it that by seeking the things above, desiring the high and lofty things that are in heaven where Christ is, I am to set my mind, act upon things that are, that are above by doing the things that are below? How do those connect? Is it dealing with sin? Is it being kind? Is it loving my wife? Is it walking in wisdom? Is it speaking graciously? How is doing what is clearly in the here and now on earth, setting my mind on that which is in heaven? I'm supposed to be thinking heavenly thoughts, right? Well, specific to our focus this weekend, what am I to do in response to set my mind and, listen carefully, family men, to set the minds of my family on the things that are above. What is your responsibility as a man with a family in the face of government oppression, disappointing officials? It is the great defense. The great defense finds its roots all the way in the Old Testament as even part of the law of Moses The great defense was utilized immediately at the outset of the church of Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost onward. The great defense was very often the sole source of comfort to the Puritan generations who were so persecuted by the government and by the Roman Catholic Church in the 15th and 16th centuries. The martyrs of Queen Mary, known as Bloody Mary in the mid-1550s, they found their greatest solace and strength in the great defense. And in fact, it was the great defense that they engaged in literally minutes before going to the stake to be burned to death. Consistently, time after time after time, they utilized the great defense. The great defense is the responsibility of every man. It's the primary way that he leads his family through the rocky terrain of living in a world that hates our Savior and hates our faith. The great defense enables a man to teach his family to live out what we just went through in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. To be heavenly minded while living on an earth that's broken by sin while we await a Savior. The great defense is something that any man can participate in. That every man who knows Christ must participate in. In fact, the great defense is the natural response to the gathering of the church on the Lord's Day. It's the outflow of the preaching of the Scriptures. It's the natural reply. It is the reaction to the glorious truths of the Gospel of Christ that we hear, that we sing, that we pray about, that we ponder when we're gathered together. What is the great defense? What is it that you must do to lead your family in a world that is broken? The great defense is family worship. That is the great defense. Now, as a pastor, most of the questions I get about family worship are along the lines of, how do I do this? I'm going to give you the short and sweet answer. Read the Bible, pray, and sing. Read the Bible, pray, and sing. Sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. See also Ephesians 5. Bible, prayer, singing. 
We're men. We can boil it down to three words. My concern is not that you know how. The how is easy. Bible, prayer, singing. My concern is that this is the means by which you shepherd your family to know how to live in a darkened world in which the next election will not solve your problems. Will not take away the sin of the world. You see, no matter what system of government you live under, every human being faces the same end. There's nothing and no one in our state's capital, there's nothing or no one in our nation's capital which can change the fact that Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. That whether you live or die in a relatively free-ish country such as the United States or live or die in a totalitarian state such as China, live in a Muslim-controlled totalitarian nation or live and die in a monarchy, it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Your geography and the particular government system you're under is irrelevant at that point. And so your hope must be in Christ. And, and listen, as the head of your families, you don't do your, your, your family any favors, any spiritual service by training them that hope is in anything than Christ. That's the lie of distracted hope. I I know of Christian men who have tantrums and fits and break things and punch holes in the walls the day after an election that didn't go their way. That's idolatry. Instead, 1 Timothy 2 says, I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgivings be made for all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Where is the place of tranquility and quietness and joy? It's in your living room. It's at your kitchen table with those who live under your roof, with your Bibles open, your hymnals open, and speaking to the Lord together. And listen, this is the norm. This is normal. This is how believers in Christ have found their total commitment, their total peace in a world that hates all that Christ is and hates His people for 2,000 years. Following the Great Reformation, one of the spiritual wildfires that burned brightly across Europe in, in Germany, in Switzerland, France, Holland, England, Scotland, was the wildfire of family worship. That as governments more than ever before, particularly through the all-powerful Roman Catholic religion, they tried to control genuine Christians, tried to control their churches, but they couldn't control the families. Families found their strength gathered at the dinner table or around the hearth of their fire with their children around them, reading the scriptures, singing praises to God, and praying and seeking the Lord as families. In fact, going all the way back to the 4th century, Christian Bible translator Jerome, he witnessed that the norm for society surrounding him in what today is known as Slovenia was that the praise of God happened much more than just in the gathering of the church. One church historian expressed Jerome's observations this way, and this is worth listening to. One could not go into the field without hearing the plowman sing his hallelujahs. 
the mower singing his hymns, the vine dresser singing the Psalms of David. It was not merely at noon and in time of their meals that the primitive Christians read the word of God and sang praises to his name. At an early hour in the morning, the family were assembled when the portion of scripture was read from the Old Testament, which was followed by a hymn and a prayer in which thanks were offered up to the Almighty for preserving them during the silent watches of the night. In the evening, before retiring to rest, the family again assembled when the same form of worship was observed. Listen, you probably won't be able to prompt the Christianization of a whole nation. That's not the goal from Scripture anyway. But you can prompt the following of Christ of your home. You can be that effective. You can make certain your home will honor and follow the true King, Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you this way. We have an election coming up in November and everybody's just all, okay, that's fine. I don't pay that much attention to it. The night before the election, what do you do? You gather with your family and you read the Bible and you sing and you pray. The night of the election, you read the Bible, you sing, you read you you pray the night after the election you read the bible you sing you pray it doesn't change and what happens in state capitals and national capitals doesn't affect it doesn't make any difference the great modern hymn says this that we have christ the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm When the winds of doubt blow through me and my sails have all been torn. In the suffering, in the sorrow, when my sinking hopes are few, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. So first of all, don't fall for the lie of distracted hope. Our hope is in a king who is coming. And second of all, remember your duty to implement the great defense. Later on this evening and tomorrow, Jesse's going to get us into the details of a proper response as Christians to living in a fallen world. And then tomorrow, I'll take one little peek at looking at Christian nationalism through the lens of eschatology. I will always find a way to preach eschatology. That's just who I am. Go home after tonight. And if you have to spend a quiet moment with yourself and the Lord and to honestly ask the question, have I been implementing the great defense in my family? And your men, we can utilize that great Christian company, Nike, and say, just do it. Just do it. This is the time. Don't wait until you see things collapsing and go, oh no, we should gather as a family. Make that your habit now. Amen? All right. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, thank you for the word of God. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. It just lifts our hearts to the glories of of what Christ has done for us in the past, in the present, what he's going to do in the future. It lifts us above everything in this world. It makes us, Lord, who those of us who are closer to the day of our death than the day of our birth, it, it makes us excited It makes us eager to see our Savior. And we have an anticipation, Lord, that regardless of what you choose to do in our our nation, and we do love our nation, we're we're called to do that. Regardless of what you do in this nation in which we live, one that 
murders millions and millions of babies that seemingly in so many ways is under the judgment of God regardless of what you do here. We can join with the Apostle John in the very last prayer of the Bible and simply find our solace in the simple request, Come, Lord Jesus. Let us be men who lead our families to look heavenward and act in accordance. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.